So if you've been coming along regularly, <coughs> you'll know that we're working through various series, and we're working through the issue of prayer. Teach Us to Pray is the name of the series, uh, and uh, it's the words that the disciples used to the Lord Jesus just before uh, He instructs them with a pattern of prayer, which we've come to know as the Lord's Prayer. And some of you, I guess, it's a, it's a dying uh, trend, I guess, these days, but some of you will remember uh, being in assemblies in school, perhaps, where you remember or recite the Lord's Prayer. Some schools, maybe around the country, still do it. I think it's probably in decline. I guess one of the good things about that is it brings to the forefront of our minds from a very young age the idea of prayer and the idea of a way of praying. The downside, I guess, is that on the, on the reverse is it becomes incredibly familiar and we end up just trotting it out without really thinking about what we're saying. And so the opportunity for us to think about prayer for us as individuals and yet at the same time using the model of the Lord Jesus' prayer as a way of helping us to navigate the aspects of our prayer life seems really profitable. So we've been on a bit of a journey up to now. We've recognized it opens up with that amazing idea that we have a Father who is in heaven. That, those two contrasting things are fairly dramatic. The idea of referring to the King of heaven and earth as Father is an astounding idea. Uh, and yet that's what we are called to do. We are called to recognize that the holiness of God, which does exist, is something that we engage in and recognize and love. And so we say in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. What does hallowed mean? It means make holy. It means that by me saying that, I am engaging in the desire to recognize the holiness of God. It's an important thing to me. So our prayer life, at least part of our prayer life, is just sitting back and reflecting and recognizing, having that conversation with God that He is a holy God. Part of our acknowledgement of prayer is that we know who He is. He is a holy God. That's, a good, that's good news. If God was not holy, we would be in a frightening place. <coughs> if not, God was not honest and just and consistent and good, we would be in real trouble. And so to say, we thank you that you are a holy God who is consistent, who is faithful, is great news. But it's not just that distant God. We then go on to say, we want the reign of the glory of the kingdom of heaven to be seen more and more now in this world because we believe it is going to be seen eternally. And so we want to live in that kingdom perspective. That's what we looked at last week, and Ash helpfully helped us to see how it is essential that we engage day to day in seeking to live today as though we recognize that we're living in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't look like it much, but the reality is that is the truth. We are living in that, and one day it will all be revealed. And then from that recognition that we live in the kingdom of heaven, we are recognizing that we live in God's world, not our world, that His will is being done, not our will is being done, and that our desire is to be adjusted in our thinking to His will, not 
not kind of fighting against it because we're competing with our will, we then go on to say, which is our, uh, our thought <coughs> for this afternoon, we then go on, go on to say, give us each day our daily bread. That's our phrase for this afternoon. That's, uh, <coughs> that's our, our, the, the line, Luke chapter 11 and verse 3, give us this day our daily bread. It's a statement, I guess, which recognizes that if I live in the kingdom of God now, part of that kingdom is a recognition that my day-to-day needs are provided in the context of that kingdom. It's as though heaven, which is a place of great provision, might be my experience today, day by day. And yet, at the same time, I think the idea for us of praying day by day that we would be provided with the very basic of needs is a real problem for Western thinking, isn't it? It's something which is, it seems so far away from our day-to-day experience that it seems as though God isn't really providing that, is He? Do we really need to rely on God for something as basic as our day-to-day needs? There is also, I I guess, there is a skepticism, isn't there, to the idea of anything which is (coughs) supernatural in terms of provision. We, We live in a world, surely, where we are providing for ourselves day by day. Therefore, we are self-sufficient, not God-dependent. And so, for us to, to, to open up the idea that we are supernaturally dependent on God, we have a Western skepticism towards that way of thinking. There are moments in our existence which challenge that, which make us think, Back in 2010, there was a horrific earthquake in Haiti. Many of you will remember it. One of the abiding images of that horrific event was five days later. We'd been watching on the screens, as, as it does in this, this generation, as disasters unfold before our very eyes. We're watching the trials, the difficulties, the hardships. It looks as if hope is completely lost. And then five days later, a little boy called Kiki is pulled from the rubble, seven years old, and he throws his arms out with this huge beaming smile on his face. This look of, I'm alive, I've, I've survived. When he was asked, how did you survive without food and water? You know what his answer was? God helped me. God helped me. And the whole of our, I guess, I reckon for most of us, when I say that, we immediately think cynically, now the reality was you just happened to be by a particular location where water was dripping down and you, and you were able to stay hydrated for five days. And yet, 
there is a beautiful simplicity. And out of the mouth of babes might the reality of that experience be stated. There is, for all of us, a true moment of dependence every moment of our day. The reality is that we just don't see it. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. And he says, I think the wording is really interesting. He says, when you pray, say, give us each day our daily bread. It takes them back to a moment in their history, which is incredibly significant. We read about it. (coughs) If you were with us while we were looking uh, at the life of Joseph, what we found out during the life of Joseph was basically how the the family of Abraham ended up in Egypt. Uh, That's how they got there. Uh, And they were blessed and they were provided for in Egypt in spite of famine. However, the favor of Pharaoh changed. One Pharaoh died, and they ended up, rather than being a, a, a people group who were blessed and found favor, they became a people group who were slaves to the Egyptian masters. The whole perspective changed dramatically. They had also multiplied dramatically. They were now not just a little family, they were a significant body of people. I guess to some extent, they were a threat to the Egyptians. They were fearful now because of the size of the group (coughs) that they had become. And God said to Moses, in leading Moses, he said, you're going to take the people out of Egypt. And there's a whole journey which maybe we'll look at uh, of how that whole episode of them leaving Egypt came about. But the upshot was that they ended up, and this is the important thing, this is the kingdom thing, they ended up as God's people, God's people in God's place, under God's rule, because he gave them a rule, uh, and, and they were in the wilderness. And as we read in the reading that we looked at earlier, the response to that, the problem with that, is it was all so great back in Egypt. You know, when we were back in Egypt, we had plenty to eat, and now we're in the wilderness. We're in a desert, and there's nothing. I think what it does at least is it gives us an insight into what we tend to be like as people. Uh, We tend to look back, don't we? And in our trials, we always look back (coughs) and think it must have been much better there. We have a tendency not to see God's blessing, not to see the remarkable, supernatural, incredible events which brought them out of Egypt. We tend to look to, to, to miss that and we say, ah, oh, but back there I had. And that was the problem with God's people. They had missed, lost sight of the fact that they were God's people in God's kingdom, under God's rule, under his protection. He'd kept them this far. Therefore, was the problem of food going to be a problem for the future? And they started to grumble against Moses and Aaron. You've brought us out here and we're hungry. And Moses made it really clear. You grumble against me, you've lost the, pe- the plot. If you're grumbling against me, the reality is that you're grumbling against God. Because it is not me that brought you out, it's God that brought you out. 
And therefore, you're not in the wrong place, you're in the right place. And God's rule in your life right at this moment is that you should be here. I guess at least what they are about to understand is being in God's place under God's rule means that we will understand how to therefore be dependent upon Him. We will be dependent upon God. And in the middle of the desert, and for 40 years, God provided for them night and day with the food that they needed. In fact, He said in verse 3, uh, the, <coughs> the Israelites, if only we had died by the Lord's hand, there, was, well, there we sat around pots of meat, we ate all the food we wanted, but, we had, uh, but you've brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. That's where they were. And then later on, in the next verse, Moses says, it will, I will, God says to Moses, rather, and Moses conveys to the people, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day, and gather enough for that day. Isn't that fascinating? They're to go out, and their, their sense of dependency on God was that by going out and collecting just what they needed for the day reminded them that today they are dependent on God because they haven't got enough for tomorrow. Because God's shaping of them was to say, and by the way, tomorrow will be the same. I'll provide for you tomorrow as well. Each day you'll get this. And that's how it worked out for 40 years. At the end of the chapter it says, the Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer, which is the amount, I love the little kind of notes in the Bible every now and then. Uh, an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So now you know how much they had. Well, you probably don't unless you know what an omer or an ephah is. Actually, it was about two liters, roughly. Uh, and and if, you're, if you're imperial rather than metric, that's about two cartons of orange juice. That's about how much they collected each day. Uh, and they collected it, and they had enough for the day, and then the following day, there was more provided. And those quails, remarkably, miraculously, were available, available of an evening. In other words, their life in that wilderness was shaped by a sense of day-to-day -day dependence upon God. They knew that that's where they were dependent. And then Jesus says in praying, I want you, in, in essence... I want you to have the same mindset now as when you were in the wilderness. When you were in the wilderness, I said, you'll get food for each day. Oh, and by the way, some of them did decide, I'm not sure whether I can trust God, so there's plenty of it around. I'll take, a, I'll take five liters rather than two liters. And they ate for the day, and then when they got in the up in the morning, they found that the food that they had taken in excess had rotted. So there was an absolute commitment from God for them to understand that they were to rely on Him each day. So what does this prayer, give us each day our daily bread, say to us? What does it say to us about prayer? 
What does it say to us about what the nature of prayer is? Prayer is at least this. It's many other things, but it is at least this. It is a way of us stating our faith in God. That's what prayer is. What do we do when we pray? In this world, in faith, believing in a God that we do not see, we form words, we form thoughts, whether they are oral, whether they are within our minds, which go out there to God. We don't see God. And yet the act of praying is a statement that we believe that this is not lost. And one of the ways that we declare that statement is through this simple prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. And we might, we might be very cynical about that, but I just want us to pause for a minute. You see, it would have been exactly the same <coughs> for those first hearers of Jesus' prayer. Exactly the same. We think, well, I can understand why in an ancient civilization like uh, the, the Israel, under Roman rule, I understand with all of the, uh, the kind of instability of harvest and all of that kind of thing, I understand why it's probably perfectly reasonable for them to pray, uh, give us this day our daily bread. That, that makes sense for them, but you know, to be perfectly honest, our supermarkets now, we don't have that dependency. They would have thought exactly the same, because they would have thought like this, give us each day our, our bread. We're not, we're not like the wilderness anymore. It's not like that anymore. I mean, come on. Have you seen the market in Jerusalem? Have you seen the, the market stall holders who bring their produce every day and we can buy as much as we want and it doesn't rot and we can store it and we can keep it and we've, got, we've developed methods of farming, <coughs> which we couldn't do in the wilderness because we were traveling around. We don't need to be dependent on God anymore. Our social location can sometimes obscure a constant reality. We might think that socially our location is that we are not dependent on God without realizing that every other generation, unless we get right the way back to wandering around in the wilderness, is in exactly the same place. So that's one thing that I would say. Prayer is a statement of faith because we are as dependent. And you say, well, what are we as dependent? I think Kiki says to us that in a moment, the world can change around us, can't it? In a moment. And your response might be, yeah, but come on, when are we ever going to have an earthquake in Great Britain that is going to cause that kind of devastation and really put us on the breadline? 
Do you know that there are a number of social commentators who would argue that actually the United States of America, that most stable, it seems, of societies, that most privileged of societies, there are many commentators who would argue that the United States is on the verge of race war that could decimate their status in the world. Isn't that interesting? Whether it will happen, who knows? But I think there are salutary warnings that what we think is oh so stable in our context actually is moments away from crisis. Because the reality is that we live in a world, and this is the next phase, yes, it, prayer is a statement of faith, but also prayer is a recognition, and this particular aspect of prayer, it is a recognition of our brokenness, isn't it? One of the reasons that perhaps we might shy away from the idea of praying, give us each day our bread, is because we turn on the TV and we see other portrayals in the world where this is a living reality. The shocking reality is that Kiki, who was pulled out from the rubble, was identified last year in a newspaper article, and he is continuing to live amongst the very rubble that he was pulled out of. He is struggling for his life. And we live in a world where that actually, for us, is titillating news. And there isn't a response which says, actually, this world is fundamentally broken. That that exists. That in this world, we might shy away from the idea of saying, I, I'm praying for my bread every day because we have so much provision. And yet there are others when it is a living daily reality. And it's not that far away from us. There is a profound brokenness in this world. There is something dramatically wrong. There are two reasons for that. And this is kingdom related. The first is that the world that we live in is not the world that God would have had us live in. The world is broken. The provision of food in this world is not an easy thing. It is a difficult thing. So praying, give, <coughs> give us this day, each day our bread, is a way of saying, I acknowledge that the world that I live in is broken. God said to, to Adam, that picture of the crisis of the world, he said this, cursed is the ground because of you. From now on, it is not going to be easy. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. What a, what a tragic picture of humanity because it is broken. It's broken. We live our lives, don't we, on that kind of hamster wheel where it just keeps going round and round and round and round. And our objective day to day is to survive this day. 
uh, and you'll work hard to survive this day, and in the end you'll return to the ground from which you came. That's what God is saying. It's not supposed to be like this, but it is like this because the world is broken. But it is not broken simply because of our rebellion. It is also broken because of our ongoing rebellion against God. It is broken because of our ongoing selfishness against God. One of those nice statistics that makes us feel comfortable and allows us to kind of wash our hands of responsibility is this. The world's 85 richest people have as much as the poorest 3.5 billion. Let me say that again. The world's richest 85 people, a few less than is in this room probably, have as much wealth as the poorest 3.5 billion. How many people live in the UK? Is it 60 million now? It is an astounding figure. There is something profoundly wrong, not just with the world, but there is something profoundly wrong with people. Many people are very clear acknowledging that the issue is not that there isn't enough food in this world, The problem is that it isn't distributed with kindness and fairness and justice. And doesn't that just shout back to what we were looking at last week? You know, part of the statement, give me this day the bread that I need, is an acknowledgement that the world is broken and I wish your kingdom would come. I wish it would not be like this. I wish it would reach a point where my daily prayer is not that I need the bread for each day because there is imminent fear in the life that I live, but that there is the hope of living in your kingdom. Maybe you're looking at the Christian faith and you're saying, yeah, but what does it say about the problems in the world? I would say, yeah, to some extent I acknowledge that the Christian faith has not done enough to deal with those issues more recently. In the past, I guess you could say that it has at times done things to resolve that. But the overarching message of the Bible is, yes, it is broken. And the problem is that it's beyond your ability and my ability to resolve. So we don't need a fixer. We need a Savior. That's the message of this prayer. Give me this day the bread that I need, says it's broken and I need more than I can deliver. And so prayer in this statement is finally a reminder of hope. Firstly, it's a statement of faith because I need to acknowledge that my day-to-day life is dependent on God and not on me. Secondly, it is not an acknowledgement of brokenness because it just should not be like this. And thirdly, it is a statement of hope. What is the picture that is portrayed at the beginning of the Bible? The picture that is portrayed is that Adam is separated from the sustenance that he needs, the life that he needs. <coughs> it's portrayed as a tree. It's portrayed as the tree of life. 
That's where he was finding day-to-day satisfaction where he was not needing to pray every day, give me this day the food that I need. Because it was just there. It was there all the time. Because he was in God's place, under God's rule. He was in God's kingdom. And therefore, it wasn't a problem. That's what it was portrayed like at the beginning. And then it all goes horribly wrong and we live our lives saying, give me this day or the bread that I need. And then God portrays for us where He's taking us to. What reappears? The tree of life. Revelation in chapter 22 and verse verse 2, it says this. This great, majestic, picture of how great the kingdom of God will one day be, says this, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life. Now, that, that doesn't work, does it? Let me just remind you that this is picture language. Let me just read that very carefully and let me see where it goes. On each side of the river, stood the tree of life. That doesn't make sense, does it? A tree can't stand on both sides of a river, can it? I think a tree has to be in one location and not the other. What's it doing? It's painting this majestic picture beyond our understanding that provision is abundant in the coming kingdom of God. Bearing 12 crops of fruit. One of the problems eventually with God's people in the wilderness as they got fed up (laughs) eating the same thing every time. And yet the portrayal of the kingdom that is to come, the portrayal which is, is seen in this statement, give us this day the bread that I need, is that one day it will be an abundant provision of great variety. Twelve crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. That's great news because it's not every day and then it goes rotten. It's every month. It's just a continuous process. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So when I enter into that recognition that prayer is a statement of faith, that I am day-to-day dependent upon God, I am also recognizing that this world is broken and I can take my mind to the place where I say, but there is hope. There is hope in you. Because no matter what we do, we cannot fix it. We don't need a fixer, we need a savior, and that is precisely what we have. Because the access to that abundant provision is limited. goes on to say in verse 14 of the same chapter, it says this, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. What does it mean to wash the robes? It means to be, in a sense, immersed in the death of Jesus. There is something remarkable in this, in this word of prayer which says, give me this bread that I need for this day. Because it points me to a hope, but it also points me to the source of that hope, which is Jesus himself. 
The access to that abundant life is through Him and Him alone. The way to be able to get to that tree so that we might have the right to that tree is by sharing in the immersed shed blood of Jesus. So it is contingent, that hope. It's contingent upon our trust in Jesus. How do we know that that trust is there? Because in faltering tiny little ways, in ebbs and flows, we are making the statement of faith through prayer which is, I am dependent upon you for the very basic needs of my existence. That's the level of my dependence. The very lowest denominator of my existence is dependent upon you. My food, the air that I breathe, what I drink, my warmth, my shelter, my salvation. I've said it so many times. I love John Piper's picture. He believes that when we are saved, we are truly God's people for all of eternity. And yet he says that he prays every single day, Father, keep me today. Because he recognizes that his salvation is day-to-day dependent on God. That is a, that's a beautiful picture of an ongoing way of us little by little saying, I need you for everything. That's faith.